This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Ink to Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Allison McLean's 1999 film, Jesus's Son. I'm sufficiently blown away. I was not expecting much from this, and and having not heard of it, I was really expecting something and, and got something pretty different. What did you think of the film? Well, first off, I was proud of you. You uh, your outline of the kind of film you would make, I thought, was pretty close to what this was. Maybe not quite as bizarre as maybe we I was imagining, um, but the title cards being very faithful, going through and almost showing each story as its own mini movie. Um, they kind of did that, uh, or, you know, Allison McLean did, and, and I was kind of blown away. I got to say, like, those title cards, when they, when they started showing up, I was like, yes, this, you have to do this. This is, it <laughs> makes it, so, for some reason, there's something about title cards in a film like this that just gives it, like, this gravitas and, like, makes it feel, each thing feel very distinctly important, like a section of the movie. I think that the movie that I was thinking was going to be a lot darker, and I think mm-hmm. that we'll talk about that, but this is this was more lighthearted than I was expecting. Really? I think just the tone was, was a lot lighter or... And and I think that that's kind of you were picking up on that from the book more than I was. Right. The humor. The humor and the lighter sense to it. Whereas I was thinking it was definitely like a story about addiction. I felt like the movie, it was very interesting because the movie didn't focus on the drugs, just like the book didn't. And you pointed that out, I think, in the last episode. But I was, for some reason, the drug, I was so focused on the drugs because it's such a big, per, like, portion of this, I feel like, of the story is like clearly like centered around drugs and addiction. Um, so I think that it was interesting when seeing the movie to, to see how far from the drugs it kind of was. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I wonder if part of it is the cinematography because the I found the movie to be extremely uh, bright, uh, almost sort of, I don't know, for whatever reason, it felt very 90s to me. I mean, obviously it was it was made in the 90s, but it felt that way. And there wasn't, I was thinking back, like, there's not a lot of like, and I'm talking about the lighting there wasn't a lot of dark scenes most of them were very saturated in light um so i wonder if that adds that feeling of it being not as dark i don't know i think you're i think you're definitely onto something there i think there's something with the lighting that it kind of it kind of screams like romantic comedy or like a lighter right tone to it whereas i was expecting requiem for a dream like very dark and dramatic mm. and cinematic um and there are very cinematic moments in this movie but that was a 90s movie as well right I think it was like 2000. Okay. I think it was like right there, like right at the cusp. So ra- yeah. that would definitely be a contemporary contemporary then. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So there's that. And then there's, uh, yeah, there was humorous moments. Uh, it does. They did thread the Michelle relationship all the way through and make it definitely much more of a, the plot was centered around his relationship to Michelle for the most part. And that is not really so in the book in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that was the filmmaker's way of of kind of grounding this a little more for for a general audience. Yeah. Like, I think that that through line makes it more palatable as a film. Absolutely. And I think that it worked. And I think it was interesting, but I think it also lost a little bit of what made the, the book feel so unique. So there's a scatteredness to the story in the book that I think leads you as a reader to search for your own through lines. 
because you aren't given something to latch onto and say, okay, this is a story about a relationship between these two characters. And instead you're going, what is this book about? And so I think it forces you to search, search for more of those existential thoughts like we talked about in the last episode as being more of that through line. Now, that leads me to another point about this movie. It feels to me like it is a movie that is interpret. It's like they had an interpretation of the text and they wanted to film something that represented their interpretation of the book. But I don't know if their interpretation is necessarily the only one. I think it is one. It is a possible interpretation of the text, but I think it was deliberately written in a way that it's more broad than that, or maybe just more ambiguous than that. In some ways, the movie felt heavy handed to me with some of these things. Some of these like religious allegories that were going on. And that was certainly present in the book, but it felt very like this is this is the point we're trying to make here, you know, recognize this. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's I guess it's it's one of those things. Maybe it was just for broader audiences, like you said, and and they decided to go that route to, to appeal to people who didn't read the source material or something. I don't know. I think in a book, it's easier to kind of because you're not physically seeing it, it's easier to kind of thread in some allegory or some details that will eventually lead to people interpreting certain ways. And part of a film is you're showing somebody something and it's like so it's more it's more like concrete. It's like this is you ha- in order to show like religious allegory sometimes. And this isn't necessarily always the case. There are filmmakers who can do it very subtly and deftly. You know, if you show a cross, that's an easy way of 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 pushing towards religion in some way and without that's the shorthand way to do it in a film and without you know without it i think that it's it's harder to plant the seeds for for interpretation sometimes there's a moment where my reaction was i don't know this is a little bit too far they went a little bit too far here but then i realized that me five ten years ago probably wouldn't have even noticed it it's just that i'm more hyper aware of these things but it's um he's in he's in a restaurant and he turns to look out the window and they frame it so that when he turns and look out the window, they're on the outside of the window looking in and there is a vine with literally thorns on it and like petals and it's draped across his forehead. Yeah. Um, which I thought like, okay, so Christ allegory there, right? Like obviously. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then uh, what that means for this story, I think is definitely open in, to interpretation. But in the moment, I was like, I don't know about that. It's a little too obvious. And then I kind of backed off because I was like, I think I'm just hyper aware of these things now. I probably would have never noticed that like five or 10 years ago. <laughs> Are you saying in terms of like your experience or in terms of when this movie came out? Because I do think there's something to be said for this movie coming out in 99. Oh, I meant more my own personal growth as someone who like pays attention to these kind of subtleties in film. Right. The reason I bring up the 1999 thing is I think that it does. I think that this movie today would be much different, clearly. But I also think that for its time, I was able to like put myself in the shoes of somebody watching it in 1999 and appreciate it even more. Um, mm-hmm. And I do want to say, I feel like so far we've kind of touched on some negatives, but I do want to say that I think that all in all, this this movie did a good job of getting the essence of what's in the book and doing it justice. I think that it's a solid film and I think, that, and I'm happy that I've seen it now because I, I don't know that I ever would have seen it without the podcast. I didn't, I didn't hear of it and, and nobody had ever recommended it to me or anything. No, I agree with that. Uh, I guess I'm just... We, we talked about it in the last episode. If you haven't listened to it, uh, the book is a very important book for me. And and it's it's a beloved book in many ways. And so 
I was a little bit of that, you know, kind of cliche book reader going into this, you know, kind of arms folded going, all right, let's see this movie adaptation. Right. You know, I was a little bit of that, I'll admit. So so maybe some of this stuff I'm being a little hypercritical or, you know, not giving them enough of the benefit of the doubt. But I agree. I think it was ultimately a good movie, a solid adaptation. Uh, the one thing I wish I had was somebody, because uh, my wife didn't watch it with me. Um, this isn't really her sort of thing. But I, I wish I had someone who was like watching it with me who hadn't read the book. Because I am curious to know what you think of this film having no knowledge that it you know maybe even no knowledge it was based on a book i was i was absolutely going to bring that up because i think that that's another reason why i enjoy the the film as much as i do because with the context and kind of like some of the subtlety that you were talking about and the interpretation yeah. that you can bring to it i think that y- you can kind of pick up on more than just the stuff that's surface level allegory and yeah. i think that there's some stuff to dig into that isn't necessarily there i think it did a good job of having contemplative moments and letting the film breathe and kind of showing our characters growing through not just through the dialogue and i i like applaud them for that because i think that that's you that's huge for this story and to to see that done well is it's really cool yeah i agree with that uh i think there was they they tackled a lot of the book's darker moments pretty well uh we see the uh you know, obviously the rabbits in emergency. Uh, there's there's uh, Dennis Leary's character in his overdose, uh, which I thought was brilliantly done with the side by side. There's a couple of moments that I think they d- actually tackle really well, and and the gravity of it hits you. Uh, you know, when which by the way we're gonna do full spoilers for this movie, uh, right right off right out the gates. So I get okay. Let me finish my thought, and then I'll then I'll return. Um, but yeah, I, basically, there are some really dark. There is some really dark stuff in this movie, and I think they nailed a lot of those parts. Yeah, I found myself nearing the end, like as we were into the third act, uh, the the end of the second and the beginning of the third. I started to feel the adaptation more. Like I started to feel the influence of the filmmaker more than just the straight adaptation of the of the material that I felt in the early parts. And I think they did a pretty good job of the changes that they did make. Uh, and I think you're right. I think that the, those heavier scenes are great to juxtapose with the early ones that are kind of like more zany and light and fun uh, to make this like a more well-rounded and full film. Because I feel like without that stuff, if we didn't, if they didn't go to the extremes that the book did, then it obviously it wouldn't have done justice to the source material. For whatever reason, you just knocked loose something that I wanted to mention before I forget it. Um, I watched the trailer for this movie. In the trailer fuckhead is peeping in at a woman and he turns to the camera and he says oh you think this is bad i've done way worse than this and that is basically i don't he 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 says verbatim what is in the book there's a line in the book that is equivalent is equivalent to that that exchange isn't in the movie Mm -hmm. so i thought it was interesting that they filmed it and they put it in the they put it in the in the trailer you know I feel like there's a lot of that. I was actually we could, we talked before that we would de- we both definitely wanted a narration in in a film adaptation of this book, and I was happy that they had it. And I thought that it was really cool that they did just do line for line for some of that stuff. Um, yeah. But I did want to mention how how did you feel when a character in dialogue in a scene would say something verbatim? Because I felt that to be a little jarring or cheesy sometimes. No, I agree. There were times where I felt like it really could have benefited from sort of a reimagining of some of these. Cause I, I do believe that there is a 
there is an artistic difference between screenplay and fiction, especially when it comes to dialogue. And dialogue that plays well in a piece of prose fiction does not always play well in a film. Now, occasionally you can hit it. Often it's just like one line you you, you keep directly out of the book, and then the rest of it is kind of been re- remixed. Right? We see this normally in our, in our adaptations. But there were a couple exchanges where I was like, this is reading from the book as if it's a script. Especially, uh, I'm thinking of like Emergency, when he's uh, the doctor comes up, and there's like an exchange with the nurse and the orderly, and he's getting on. He's like, "Are you an orderly? Is this a hospital?" And like, there was a. It went on for a while where I'm like, "This is all verbatim from the book." And on one hand, like I understand you're maybe this is out of a desire to be extremely faithful, but at a certain point, I don't know who this is serving because as a book fan, I kind of wanted something different there. Weirdly, I don't know if all book fans would agree with that, but I did. It's worth it just to kind of say it out loud a bunch of times and see if it's if it's natural on the day on set for sure. Um, if if we felt like it was jarring just from that one viewing that we had, I'm sure that on set it felt a little bit like that. But they wanted to roll with it, and I think I, I, again, I, I think that it's a cool idea. I applaud them for wanting to try it, um, and I just don't think it worked out every time. But once again, we're focusing on something negative when when really this is this is a pretty solid adaptation. A uh, lot of good stuff in there. This is one of the only times I've seen somebody try and adapt a, like a, a collection of short stories. Um, that's very unusual, um, you know, to not see something that's more of like a maybe maybe a series where each episode is devoted to a short story in and of itself or something. But this is a collection of short stories put into a film. And I, I applaud Allison McLean for being able to create a cohesive story around the Michelle character to link her to a lot of these moments uh, that were profound in our main character's life uh, to make the story simultaneously about him and her for a lot of it, and then to still feel like it is doing justice to the original source material and leaving you with a, at least I would say, 90% similar feeling. I don't know if that's being generous or not, but yeah, about 90% maybe similar feeling at by the end, like you've gone through a similar experience. Yeah, I agree. I was just thinking about how how difficult it would be to adapt this this book, and and just in terms of deciding what to take out and what to add is a monumental feat. I feel like we talked about voiceover, and we said that we would have it, we would include it for this for this book or for this movie. Well, you said you would, and they definitely did. That was the first thing that leaped out of me. I'm like, all right, they're going full voiceover here. We in fact get most of the movie being narrated to us. Uh, did you ever feel like it was too much? Like it was too much voiceover? I didn't know. I didn't notice that. I didn't feel like that. What, did you? Sounds like it. Yeah. So I kind of wanted them to back off on it a little bit. There's beautiful language in the book. And I absolutely get the urge to fill in a lot of those exact lines, thoughts in the guy's head that we can get right out of the book. But at times it felt like it was taking away from the gravity of the scene because it feels very removed whenever we have him thinking about it and like remembering it. Uh, versus letting the scene play out in its immediacy just inform us. It it felt, it, to me, it felt like it created a little bit of distance between me and what was going on. And you could argue that that's that way in the book, but my counter argument is that I think it works better in fiction than it necessarily does in a film. Yeah, I can see that. So moving forward here, we are going to talk about the filmmaker, Alice McLean, and then we're going to talk about plot, just give a 
brief synopsis and then talk about some details that, that stood out to us. Uh, but I definitely also want to touch on cast. So I think we'll do that in between those two things. So speaking of plot, we're definitely going to do a brief plot t- discussion here. And that's because we, you know, we had a pretty hefty episode last week. And ultimately, the plot is pretty dang similar to the book. Uh, so what I think we're going to do is focus more on the differences, the things that were changed. Uh, but we won't get into everything that happens. Uh, so yeah, I do recommend you go back and listen to that episode if you want to know more of uh, more of the plot of this thing and what we thought about maybe some of the intricacies of the story. So Alison McLean is the filmmaker here. She is a Canadian film director of music videos, short films, television commercials, and feature films. Her first short film, Kitchen Sink, A Surreal Suburban Nightmare, debuted in Cannes in 1989 and won eight international awards. McLean moved to New York in 1992. Her film Crush was entered into the 1992 Cannes Film Festival. After several years developing projects, she got her second feature, Jesus' Son. It was awarded the Little Golden Lion Award and the Ecumenical Award at the 1999 Venice Film Festival. and was named one of the top 10 films of the year by the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and Roger Ebert, among others. This movie, or was that for Crush? That was this movie. This movie, okay. It was named one of the best movies of the year? By, yeah, by New York Times, uh, Los Angeles Times, and Roger Ebert, who, and I I love Roger Ebert. I totally thought this movie flew more under the radar than that. I'm surprised to hear that. Well, I think it, I think that it did. I mean, I think it's, I think it's deserved. I just, I, I, I didn't know that it got the recognition. I think that it did fly under the radar. I think that it was like, it it went to the festivals. It did well at festivals and a lot of people really liked it. But I think it was like an indie darling. It was like a smaller film that that didn't spread wide and didn't, wasn't very successful wide. But I mean, someone like Roger Ebert says it's one of the best movies of the year. Like clearly you did something right. Yeah. It seems like it could appeal to somebody who is looking for something new because in a lot of ways, this movie did feel fresh and different. Especially for 99, 1999. So she did have another film recently. The rehearsal came out in 2016. Uh, oh, I haven't okay. seen it, but from what I understand, I was going through and reading what some people's thoughts here and there. Apparently, it was very artistic again, so it was very arty. But I think, from what I understand, people felt that it was like a little too much. Like, like there wasn't there was a lot of art and not quite as much substance. So mm-hmm. it, it wasn't like a huge hit or anything. But she she's still directing features, which is good to hear. Yeah, so so there was a huge jump there, it sounds like, though, from 99 to 2016. During the bio piece there, I, I was talking about how she does, she's done television, she's done Gossip Girl, uh, she directed some of the Tudors. Um, she's she's done a lot of uh, TV since Jesus' Son, and right up until 2016, she directed the rehearsal. Okay. So something interesting about the production here, um, I don't know if you noticed this or not. Maybe you, maybe you saw it online or maybe you did notice the author of the book it actually cameos in the film did you notice this oh actually i did so i read i read that back when i was doing research for dennis johnson for our book episode i saw some you know it said it makes a cameo in jesus son as as uh terrence weber who is mm-hmm. the uh the victim of the hunting knife through the eye <laughs> incredible it was um, just it was so I, I saw him and and didn't know and then when i was reading the credits I saw his name and I was like, no way. And then I looked into it. Okay. So you didn't know going in because when that scene came on, I, I knew already that it was him. So I was no, looking for it. that was That's so cool. much fun. I, I looked really, really hard. I tried to find his, his reaction to the film or anything like that. Um, but I couldn't find anything. You talked about on the book episode, he's, he was he was famously a recluse. So he may yeah. not have had many public thoughts on it. He probably didn't talk about it a lot. Yeah. Well, it's also kind of pre-internet era, right? Where everything is 
picked apart and, and there's a million interviews and everything's on YouTube. And it's like a little bit before that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously this movie hasn't gone on to have some immense cult following. I don't think. So that's why we chose it. Such a popular, <laughs> such a popular <laughs> thing for us to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it has a great cast though. Yeah. I'd... What's the name of the actor who plays Michelle? Her name is Samantha Morton. Samantha Morton. So, Extremely familiar. I I must have seen her in some other stuff. I've got a couple. I've got a couple of uh, movies that she was in. If you want me to rattle them off, yeah, let's hear it. Then I'll get to my point. I was gonna make it better. She was in Minority Report. Okay, yeah. Is yeah. that the one? Uh, is she is she one of the? Is she the precog? I think that sh- she is. Yeah, I just looked it up. She's she's totally the precog. That's that was a good pull, dude. Yeah, actually, now that you said that, I, I, I can picture that character's face and like that's her. The whole point of me bringing her up is I think to me, hers was the performance that shined through the most, in my opinion. Uh, Billy Crudup, I think I think he was good, um, if not necessarily excellent. I actually really, really, I, I thought that his performance was excellent. Okay, so I was gonna say I think he had mom. I think he had moments of excellence, but there were other times where. I struggled to connect with the emotion behind the things he was saying, especially early on. Things that he was saying within a scene or narration or like VO. Yeah. So early on with like car crash while hitchhiking, um, especially like that, that initial thing we got. I don't know. I just struggled to connect with him fully um, and to kind of believe the emotion behind what he was saying. But I think as the movie progressed, I got more and more on board with it. And I do think there were moments of excellence. Um, I don't know if throughout I thought he was killing it in every scene. I don't know. Um, no, I, I totally get that that is a very, that's a highly subjective thing. I'm not trying to say that my opinion is correct. <laughs> you know, that's just how I subjectively felt about it. No, I got you. We'll talk about him in a second, but get back to Samantha Morton. But yeah, Samantha Morton was to me the ta- like the star of the movie. Um, and it's it was cool because she was essentially an invented character. She was she was like a combination of multiple women in the book that none of them really have as much to do as she was given. And um, I don't know. She just really sold it. And, you know, obviously there's that big dance she does to, to be introduced and um, <laughs> captivating our main character and uh, captivating me as well. Yeah, I think she was a captivating character, captivating performance. And, and every time she was in, in, in the scene with him, I think they had great chemistry and it made that sold that relationship and it sold the tragedy of what they go through and went through. And yeah, what ultimately happens to her, you know, obviously made it incredibly sad. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't want to completely say everything that you just said. So I'll, I'll agree with that. <laughs> and then uh-huh. just say the I, I think that the way that she was able to she was able to portray every emotion um, in such a way that I, I don't know, I bought it the entire time. And like, like you said, she was a she's a made up character for the for the film. And I think that in, to have that be the best character is kind of a kind of a huge feat. So I thought she killed it. So uh, one performance that I thought was just OK that I had been really been looking forward to was Jack Black in Emergency as the orderly. And I think he yeah. does. There are certain things he does that he he nails. Um, I think part of it is I I read Emergency this most recent time knowing that Jack Black played Georgie. And so when I was reading it, I was actually picturing Jack Black saying the lines. <laughs> and um, I think what I had imagined when it when met with reality, in some ways, it was like almost a letdown. Like it wasn't quite as Jack 
black zany as I thought it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also felt like he was a little stiffer in some ways than he I've seen him be in other other movies. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that I, I I think comes back to the fact that for the most part they were saying word for word what was in the book. And so I'm wondering if some of this. And you think about think about uh, Michelle's character. Maybe one of the reasons why I felt so felt so strongly about her character is because they gave her fresh lines, whereas a lot of what well, a lot of what our main character says and a lot of what Georgie says is right out of the book. Word for I word. mean, I, I think you're right. The fact that I think every line that Georgie delivers is is from the book. I yeah. can't think of anything that he says that isn't. And I think that first of all, Jack Black is a national treasure. He's he's an incredible <laughs> he's an incredible improviser is the yeah. thing. And so for him to not be able to improvise fully and kind of be I mean he was pretty funny in some of the some of the interesting stuff he was doing. Yeah. Uh but you know his quirky little like th- his introduction when he's like doing that squat thing that I yeah. that had me cracking up. Yeah. He's he's getting to use his sort of he has a physicality to him that is always funny that he was able yeah. to kind of use in those scenes. But I agree. When you told me that Jack Black was in it, I was expecting, and then you said it was Georgie, I was expecting something different. And instead of being like the true highlight of the movie, um, he was just, I don't know, he was he was good. He just wasn't like, he didn't steal the movie to me. Like I thought he might. I thought it might be like, oh man, he, how great was Georgie in this movie? Each of, so there's so many actors in this movie and like a bunch of them were, were cameos. And this, this movie came out in 99. So a lot of these these cameos were from, from people that we've seen in, in numerous roles since. Yeah. Uh, and one that really stood out to me, and I think it's just because I'm in love with this person, is Michael Shannon. Yeah, as Dun Dun, the the killer. Absolutely love Michael Shannon as a character actor, and and he he's such a fascinating actor to me. He he really brings this like cold, quiet intensity while also having this like rage in him, and he just yeah. seems dangerous. And that that whole I felt like he basically stole the stole the movie. I I'll agree that he at least was you know a highlight uh he i think it's because i'm biased yeah no i also i also share a similar love for him he i i love that he had like a mop on his head in this role <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a pretty obvious wig um which then like someone's gonna be like no that was his real hair um it looked like a wig that's all i can say and it was funny to see him so young right but he's still like his face is the same <laughs> now as it is you know 20 years later but I don't know. I, I really liked him too. He does have he has he has this like dead eye thing he can do. He's a shark. Where yeah, it's like exactly like he's a shark. He's, he's capable of. You can see this character is capable of extreme violence, and yeah. he does this really well. I, I really appreciated his uh, performance in what was it? Boardwalk Empire. Um, yeah, he. I mean, he's really good in that. He's good in a lot of the other stuff he's in. You're not gonna believe this, but that's a gap for me. I haven't seen Boardwalk Empire, mm. and everybody tells me how much I should watch it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's one of the best shows to come out or anything like that but really solid period piece has some extremely good episodes but it definitely is one of those shows that has some highs and some lows Um, another one for me sopranos still haven't i still haven't watched all the sopranos either yeah i haven't seen that either which i know owes a lot to the godfather uh which by the way complete tangent uh i've been re-watching breaking bad after watching the got all the godfather series and knowing that uh, Vince Gilligan has said that he wanted Walt to become Michael Cor- Corleone, mm-hmm. to me, I can see Michael Corleone all over that character. 
Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Like, just seeing that blueprint. Anyway, that's a complete aside. Different project. Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> you brought it up. Uh, did you see that they're that uh, they're doing like a Breaking Bad movie? I think Netflix is doing a Breaking Bad movie from from uh, Jesse's perspective or something. Yeah, it's about. I think it's about Jesse after the events of Breaking Bad. Yeah, I'm excited. It'll be interesting to see. So back to Jesus, his son. <laughs> right. Another amazing cameo that I was not. I, I didn't even recognize at first was Holly Hunter as mira uh at the aa meeting okay i don't i don't think i know that actor i feel like you would know her uh if you saw her she did look somewhat familiar she normally has long blonde hair she was in uh the have you seen the piano no um she did you see the big sick a couple years ago no raising have you seen raising arizona no okay (laughs) i know something that you've definitely seen she was she's the voice of elastigirl in the incredibles i haven't seen the incredibles you've never seen the incredibles (laughs) no that's surprising man so this is this is my we're talking about blind spots here uh i've missed this person's entire career apparently and i apologize i think she's just a great actor um i really really recently the big sick i really enjoyed her portrayal in but she's great man definitely check some of that stuff out uh how about dennis hopper in in, as bill he was fun um which they they changed that conversation a little bit um to give it a certain meaning that I wonder, I don't know, I kind of want to go back and reread the book now that I've seen the movie, um, because it is a certain perspective on the book that I could bring with it to the text. Um, but if you noticed in that conversation they have, uh, the first thing that happens is, fuckhead, he, he, he has some sort of like f- like extra perception. Do you remember exactly what he says? He sees something he shouldn't be able to see, or he knows something he should, oh, he knows what the guy's going to say. And he's all freaked out. He's like, I was going to say that. How did you know I was going to say that? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Which isn't that weird. But then immediately following that, he is picturing a car crash. And and it's very, to me, it seems like he's seeing the moment from car crash while hitchhiking. Did you get that impression? I didn't. That's cool, man. That's a cool read. He's talking about a car crash and all these broken bodies and stuff. And it felt to me like he was having a vision about his past. I'm gonna have to rewatch and, and look for that. I guess we're just fully hopping around, right? Yeah. <laughs> do you want do you want to give your little descriptor you were gonna give the little paragraph yeah. just so we can fully get into it? Well, okay, so so Dennis Hopper is in this, and then the two other actors that I wanted to talk about were Dennis Leary and Billy Crudup yeah, as as exactly. the main character. So mm-hmm. um, my touchstone for Billy Crudup was it was almost famous, really. I mean, I love Almost Famous, and he I don't know, kind of a similar time period, not a similar role, but he it it's it was very interesting to see this. This was before Almost Famous, and you could see kind of somebody seeing this film and saying like, oh, I can see him in in the Almost Famous role. I haven't seen that movie. That that one. That's that. <laughs> This is a massive one, dude. You got to watch that one. <laughs> I'm killing. If you guys can't tell I'm killing James right now. <laughs> That's a big one, man. Uh, you would you would love that movie. You would love a lot of these movies. So we'll have to we'll have to I'm have sure. a watch party here soon. Okay, so we've talked about the actors. Let's talk about some of the specifics. But first, let me give this little plot. This story is set in the drug subculture of the 1970s, and its protagonist, a young man in his 20s, careens through his days getting stoned, stealing, and scamming a quick buck. Through it all, he tries to make sense of the mutually destructive passion he shares with a beautiful woman named Michelle. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess that about sums it up. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, In some ways. So that description doesn't do it justice, but if you want to hear the specifics, go check out our book coverage, and we we really get into like what happens in each individual story. Yeah. What we we try to. (laughs) Yeah. That episode was massive, and we, we felt like... 
we were, we we could have gone for like three hours on that episode. <laughs> yeah. So coming back around to like me noticing that that the, the the thorns laying over the head for whatever reason this movie I was noticing all kinds of stuff like this throughout, and I don't know if that means that this movie was too overt in in the in sort of the filmmaking stuff they were doing or if it was that i was too hypersensitive to it but let me let me just run down like a list of them and if you want to react to them you can't just stop me but just things i noticed okay when michelle and fuckhead start making out for the first time at the party they're outside by a barnyard or like by a stable which Mm -hmm. i thought was very obviously trying to say that they have a very animal attraction and that it's very sort of like foundational uh natural that kind of thing you know what i mean like i could see that one other one yeah. other little viewpoint uh the baby in the manger jesus well sure yeah there's tons of christ imagery in here right for yeah. sure so they also throughout i thought there was song choice usage that was very on the nose for the scene so when she's dancing she's dancing to a song about being attractive at a party and everybody's looking at you and they want to have sex with you or something. (laughs) And then like one person is willing to like, it was very on the nose. Um, Uh The really clear example of this was later on when he meets the guy wearing a snake skin jacket, which snake obviously could be a tie to the snake in the garden of Eden. Um, Mm -hmm. And the song is literally Satan is real. He walks among us or something like that. And I'm like, okay, this is clearly this guy is (laughs) supposed to be like a Satan figure. Um, now, how the scene plays out is more like in the book where there, there was like a Christ thing and he, he felt like it must have been him. But then I thought that the movie was telling me, no, that wasn't Christ. That was Satan. I don't know what that means, but there you go. So I, I will say just talking about that real quick, I, I mm-hmm. mentioned in the uh, in the book, there was like maybe some suppressed sexuality stuff. I didn't get any of that in the film. Okay. Uh, another small one. When he and Michelle are like officially together, they have sex for the first time, the 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 octopus on the screen um now it would have been subtle if they hadn't all of a sudden done a full screen of the octopus right to me that said like this is important and this is where i keep feeling like some of this stuff was maybe too overt i think but, that was the fir- when she, or, that was the first time she was shooting heroin in front of him and he was like eating cereal and there was like cartoons on the tv from it cut from her like shooting up to like basically the tv and there was like this like happy song because i wanted to talk about that scene too oh and they, they i think he i think they're share they were sharing a needle too because i think he takes some but i'm not 100 about that but my point is to me to me the octopus represented like you know we have four appendages you know two arms two legs um two people together have eight and so to me, that was a, like a, a symbol of them being unified into one unit now, which we then get like the next bit is all about them as a couple. So I got that in like, so a lot of the stuff I was getting, I, I, I don't know, for, for whatever reason, I, maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit. I kept thinking like, oh, they're being too obvious because I'm picking up on it. <laughs> well, I will say like, I mean, I feel like you're, yeah, you're bringing your interpretations to it. Like I, on, like that octopus thing, I didn't get that because I was focused on, I think what we're, I think we're talking about two like kind of separate things. Like the first, I think the first part is she's like shooting up and she's like, have you ever seen anybody shoot up before? And he's just like eating cereal. And then I think the next scene maybe is when like, like, so then it does the close up of the TV and then directly after that is when they're about to have sex, I think. No, because uh, she, she does the drugs after they've had sex for the first time. 
I think it's all taken together is like a coming together of these two characters. They're now they're now linked. They're now one one thing. So for me, there was like this theme of innocence that was like that was kind of set up early on for for fuckhead. And I felt like this this innocent scene of him walking out in his underwear and eating eating cereal while she's like shooting up heroin and there's like a happy song playing and there's like cartoons on the TV in the back. It's like a master, yeah. like a wide master of this. And I, I thought that that was very much like his innocence and like this like losing of innocence moment for him. Uh, uh, so another one, that I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, this one is very overt to, again. Uh, we have him reaching through glass later, touching the Mennonite couple. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, woman. And then coupled immediately with him walking through the halls of Beverly home and touching everyone he walks by, like he's kind of a savior, right? Like he's, he's touching the, you know, like he's Jesus among the, you know, handing out miracles. Um, and I'm fine with all of this being sort of like symbolic subtext to the movie, but in some ways, I don't know, like it, it felt like it was maybe too heavy handed. So you're saying it's losing its ambiguity that you liked from the book, basically what you're saying? Yeah, because in the book, a lot of that stuff is more like maybe you could read it that way or maybe you could read it a completely opposite way. Um, you know, is he a is he a Jesus figure at the end of the book? I don't know. Um, but in the movie, he clearly was. It didn't bother me because I think that it I, it was like the viewpoint of the filmmaker. But I guess that kind of contradicts what I said earlier with it being such a faithful adaptation. I think having him be this savior might be a more watchable arc for an audience member of a film, maybe like showing showing his like innocence and then the fall and then the rise again and kind of becoming this the savior allegory. Maybe that's easier for an audience to watch rather than it being like so loosely, loosely connected like the book. And to be fair, I don't think it is a clear cut. He is a savior because he's not really saving people at the end. This movie's interpretation of the text is very interesting. And it, definitely worth talking about. I guess I just felt like it was it was it didn't leave as much room for ambiguity, and and that's I think a subjective thing. And like like maybe maybe people don't want that. They, they, this movie takes a stand and it says I think this is what this book is about and this story is about. So I'm going to present it in this way. If this was Dennis Johnson's goal, this is was this was his vision. I don't think he would have called the the novel or the collection of short stories Jesus' Son. Jesus's son because it's it just seems like calling it Jesus's son and then having all of this like he had enough like there was like the angel in the graveyard and and like all this other stuff that was in the book that was kind of leading you to think think along those lines but this was like very sure. clearly like I mean the moment where he like sees the cross and doesn't take the guitar or like again the moment in the graveyard or all of these things just built I think maybe there was too much of it and it built to it to it basically saying like this is what the film is about and you would have liked a little more ambiguity. And I think I do agree with that. I guess I'm not saying there was too much of it. I would have liked more ambiguity. I'm just noticing, I guess, that there was a lot of it and there mm -hmm. was less ambiguity. Well, I, I, I would say that I I thought that that was your point. But now now it's my point. I think that I do wish that there was uh, a little more ambiguity. It did it, like bringing up all of it in a list like this makes me feel like, oh, this is like too, too on the nose. But again, then yeah. again, maybe it's like, you dug into it too much, and now I am, and I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we've we've overanalyzed it, and this is stuff people wouldn't pick up on as strongly. Um, but once again, maybe they're trying to provide a thematic through line for the movie that unifies all these stories in an even further way, even stronger way. Um, so maybe they felt like that was necessary for the movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's 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 back up a little bit. I know we're kind of at the at the end there, but I think there's a lot in the middle we can still talk about. 
Uh, let's talk about Dennis Leary's scene. So I watched... So I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of this show, but I watched all of it, um, and I think it had moments of brilliance. Um, Rescue Me was a mm-hmm. show that Dennis Leary did, and it was all I think about... it was on FX, fi- right? FX, yeah. It was like firefighters uh, after 9-11, and, it, and when it was at its best, it was going through a lot of like the difficulties they had and coping with it and being survivors after that happened. Um, and I, you know, I, I liked, I, for the most part, liked it. Um, I, I definitely had a lot of, you know, questionable stuff that went on in it. And I'm not necessarily, you know, co-signing Dennis Leary as this amazing guy. Cause I know that he's, he's said and done some questionable things, but I thought he was good in this role. And I think he played, played this role well. And I connected with his character and, uh, I said it in the opening, but I think the, the idea to do this side by side, uh, breakdown of what happened and showed that our main character gets rescued by Michelle and uh, Dennis Leary's character does not. I think his name was Wayne. He mm-hmm. doesn't have anyone to rescue him. He has he has the guy who comes in and takes one look at him and walks away and basically leaves him there to die. Um, and yeah, I don't know that the the moment from the book where it was very strong sense of the randomness of it, the tragedy of that, how unfair it was. They talk about it in the in the movie as well you know we are we are you know more we're luckier than other people and that's why we lived or maybe unluckier mm-hmm. um and that's the sense i got from that scene uh once again i didn't need him to say the i am still alive line because to me that is a, that is a line that is only necessary in a book or only only to me and i would argue only powerful in a book in my opinion it lost its power in the movie um to me, the scene itself said enough to where we didn't need it. Well, we don't need somebody to tell us, like, like within the context of a book, we if somebody doesn't say I'm still alive, then we don't necessarily know, unless the no, no, I know, and I see what you're saying. Like, in, you could argue it's unnecessary in both. By seeing it on film, he's still alive. You know, yeah. we see it. We don't need anybody to say it. So I can understand losing that line. I did want to go back to the split screen moment because I think that split screen is something to think about in terms of form. It's something you can't do in and and you know in a book. You have split two things that are simultaneously. You're having to watch both things at the exact same mm-hmm. time. You can't do two things at once in a book. You can concentrate on one thing and cut back to another thing and back and forth, but you can't mm-hmm. do physically at the same time two things. And I know some people feel that split screen is is outdated at this point or or overused, but I think that it's interesting to look at the tools of the medium and just think how you can use them to your advantage and kind of, and I think that it was done well in the scene because we are having, seeing both play out simultaneously and then seeing one die and one survive at the exact same time is, is powerful. And I like there was a bait and switch too, because it looks like fuckhead is the one who's in, who's in real trouble. Whereas Dennis Leary is just kind of Wayne, I should say is just sort of slumping. Um, you know, fuckheads coughing and like gagging. Um, but then he gets rescued, you know, and then we then we go, oh, okay, he's actually just as bad, if not worse. I have to say, Wayne's wife nakedly flying on a parasail is a lot more believable yeah. than a kite. I think that's what he meant. I think maybe he just didn't know. I think he was saying it. It it looked like a kite, but I think it was a to me it was like a parasail type situation. Okay, because I took it to be like this is some trippy like dream stuff. Because then he talks about being in, how he was yeah. in his dream and stuff. Well, I think he described it that way to make it seem that way, you know, to make it feel that way. But it works better. Um, still, still kind of bonkers, but it, it, you know, more grounded makes makes sense. 
it, it was really bonkers. And in fact, in the movie, maybe even more so because we don't get the follow-up scene where he goes and talks to his wife at all. Yeah. Um, he just says, that was my wife. And we have to just take him at face value that that was. Because <laughs> he could just be saying, yeah, that was my wife to some random person. That's my wife. <laughs> yeah. That's classic comedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> it worked, and, and and I like that moment. Uh, it, I just come back to that, to that I'm still alive. And, and I'm, I've been sitting here thinking, like, why does it work better in the book? And I think it's because when he delivers the line, I am still alive, he's delivering it in the language of the medium in which you are experiencing the art itself. The art itself is is conveyed through the language you read. Cinema is different, or film is different, because you're watching film, and I feel like dialogue, or voiceover, which is just sort of a form of dialogue, is is just a facet of that, right? Like, it's an extension of the thing you're experiencing it through. So I felt like they had shown it through the through the medium already, and so to have him say it was redundant, whereas to have him say it in the book is just more in keeping with the uh, the medium, I think, and in which you're experiencing the story. Does that make sense? And I think that that's why, yes, I agree. And I think that that's why people struggle with dialogue. I mean, I think people struggle with dialogue in, in novels and, and fiction as well, but people struggle with dialogue because film, I think that it's easier for it to come off as not important. I think I see what you're saying. It sounds like we're we're talking we're circling some of the same ideas here. <laughs> um, so I so I want to see if you know this actor's name because I just remembered another cameo. Uh, so after the well, I guess we should really talk about the abortion stuff. Um, but after that, <laughs> uh, she's with John Smith, I think is his name, and they were going to go to uh, Michelle, and they're going to go down to Mexico, and he's just in their place, uh, and the guy's sitting there in the bed. That guy, that actor, always plays bad guys to me, and he does it really well. He's like a certain brand of bad guy, and he does he doesn't have to say hardly anything in the scene, but he's still really effective as like somebody you dislike just immediately. <laughs> so for me, I remember him. I think he was in like he's in a football movie. He's in like Remember the Titans or something. Yes, yeah, he is in Remember the Titans, right? And he's and he's not a bad guy in that movie. Yeah, and that's one of the ones that really sticks out to me. For, for that uh, actor. So I don't really see it as much, but I think he did a good job in the role. I think I disliked him like immediately in this role for sure. Yeah, because I remember seeing Remember the Titans and expecting him to be more of a villain. And then and then it was one of the few times where he was able to sort of like, because he, he has a, one of the things that makes him a compelling villain is he has a certain likableness to him as well, um, to where he's like, he's a villain, yet he he's intelligent and he's and the way he speaks is always, he's always kind of soft-spoken and, he has a certain kind of intensity to him. It's just like an intimidating thing, right? Well, because he seems he seems like he's, he, he can see through other people's bullshit. Right. And so as a villain, that can be intimidating because it's like you're not going to fool him. We're, we keep talking about him. His name is his name is Will Patton. Will Patton. Thank you. Yeah. I, so I, he was one that I, because um, I didn't recognize his name, um, I, I didn't expect him to be in this movie. When he popped up, I was like, oh, man. That guy, I just didn't know his name, so that's why. But uh, yeah, he was good. So, but let's back up and talk about the abortion stuff because um, definitely a little different than the book, but also gives me. I feel like it, it was a really fascinating look at the uh, the abortion scene and, and and viewing it sort of in a different light while maintaining a lot of the the same. I think because it's Michelle and it's the same character, right? So all of a sudden, this is a really important moment for their relationship. Whereas in the book, it was a different woman from from previous parts, or it's unclear. 
who was the same and who wasn't um, because his romantic partners were, 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 was a revolving door in the book. This is why you have this character exist, right? Like having this character to have her also be the woman who gets an abortion and then ultimately dies. That is super compelling to have a a through line of that character dying. Uh, I think that that worked. That was like the reason to add that character. And they think they pulled it off really well. Does it undercut, the idea a little bit because you could argue that her character in this film sort of serves the main character's personal growth like oh you're saying like she she exists to serve to move his his arc along yeah 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 is that is that a is that a fair because i don't know if you can really say that about the book because it's not one character it's a revolving door it's more to me it was always more like the women in his life were a character but that character was his own imagining of what he wanted in a romantic relationship and and he was sort of he he always felt like they were going to save him like they were motherly to him and and so they all sort of were the same character in that they fit a certain role for him in his life um but in the, in the movie it is the same person throughout and so I think then it opens itself up to that sort of that sort of analysis. I think you're right. I think that there's something there as far as his arc is concerned for it to be him on his own and not them together and like maybe even her serving his plot. I think it it makes for a more personal story for him in a weird way. You know, it's like it's like you would think it'd be more personal because he's more intimate with this person for a longer period of time. But I think the growth of losing a partner and moving on to a new one and doing that multiple times also helps serve his arc in some way. Yeah. Yeah, And I and I guess I'm just sort of playing like devil's advocate a little bit because it's not really something that I strongly felt watching it. And ultimately, her her arc in and of itself and her what happens is believable. She's shown to be, you know a heroin addict and they have a destructive relationship and we talked about it in the book but he always turns to people who are just as broken as he is and he wants them to save him but you know he ends up letting them down and then and then conversely uh they let him down in some ways and uh here it's him it's another situation of him letting her down right because of this that that letter or that note she wrote for him, like, if you love me, you'll you'll wake me up or something like that. And he didn't see mm. it. And we see him do that again later where he accidentally kills the rabbits, uh, the baby rabbits, because he accidentally lets them slip around behind him. Well, is an emergency before? Emergencies before. Okay, yeah, so maybe yeah. not later. But, but kind of the same there, thing. It's it's Yeah, to me, it's like still this, there's so much bad stuff happening to him. It's, you know, it is his fault, but also sort of, I guess that's one thing I felt too for the movie is it felt a little bit like he wasn't quite as much of a sad sack, <laughs> I guess, which because he was a huge sad sack in this movie. But uh, in the book, he was like even more so. And and he was I think he was more irredeemable in the book at times, um, whereas I think they made him a little more they made him a little more redeemable here. Like we, we, we feel like he has the good intentions. We, we don't see him doing as many like totally reprehensible things. I think that that's definitely true. The, uh, so do you feel that he was more, so when you say sad sack, do you think that he was so- more sorry for himself in the, in the, cause I feel like he's more sorry for himself in, in the movie, but in the book he's more, he's like, uh, just like wallows in it. Like he's like resigned to it. Yeah. He kind of like knows that he's lives it. Yeah. He's accepted it. Like this is just how I am. Yeah. I I think that's fair to say. 
what it all means, I don't know. So this, it's funny because as much as I want to say this movie is taking all these strong stands, there's, it still is pretty interpretive because let's talk about the end now. So, well, one more thing I wanted to say as far as Dirty Wedding is concerned. Yeah. The end of car crash while hitchhiking happens after the abortion. So he p- pulls the baby from yes. the wreckage. I wanted to know how you felt about that because I know you really liked uh, car crash while hitchhiking. So it's sort of clever in a way because I think it recontextualizes something in a way to make it a response to the abortion. He saves the baby for a reason, and it's because he lets, you know, he lets his baby die in the abortion, you could argue. One might argue. Um, so that one made me think because it made me re- revisit the text in, a, in sort of a time is a flat circle, true detective way and saying, okay, chronologically it occurs first, but maybe it is still a response to that later event. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is why he saves the That's baby. what I was going to ask you is, do you think that like retroactively we need to look at that story and think of it in terms of the abortion that would later come, like the protect protection yeah. of the child and also how that stands up with the abortion of a child. Well, I think clearly the movie's trying to tell us to look at it that way. I, I think that is a valid way to interpret it. So we have a couple other things to get through here before the end. I wanted to shoot to the trippy mushroom egg pill oh, yeah. thing. And I wanted to see yeah. if, if that felt as like jarringly out of context to you. Like it just felt like it was out of nowhere and it was there because it was in the book. Uh, but I did want to say like that was like kind of the trippy drug stuff that I, w- that I would have had in my film for sure. See, that's what I focused more on, I think, is I was like, oh, this is exactly what, what I feel like James was saying he would do. He wants more of these drug sequences, which we didn't get very many of them. It was a lot more of just kind of glassy eyes. I think that's why, um, I, yeah. I think that's why I felt like I, I thought that it was going to be a little darker, a little more uh, heavily drug. Uh, I mean, there are a few, focused. though, because we get we get we get the crosses, obviously, uh, in the drive in. But we also get the the guy with the tattoo on his heart well, we, sort of floating out. Yeah, true. And a few times I think lighting changes and we can interpret that that's the drugs. Yeah. Having their effect in, in the scene. Mm-hmm. So there's a few of them. But I agree that scene, it, it felt a little bit like we need to have a zany over the top drug scene in this movie. So let's put it in. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see that. It, it was definitely kind of silly with the, you know, gauze floating around and all that stuff. I mean, I like that. I like that part. <laughs> it was super. It was, over the fi- top, yeah. it was fine. Honestly, it didn't bother me. I, I, I liked it. Okay. So he has this, this uh, really genuine connection with the woman that he meets at the AA meeting named Mira, played by Holly Hunter. I like this. I like their relationship. I like like kind of what it was leading to, and uh, I, it feels the the ending of the of the film feels a lot neater to me than the the book did. It feels like a lot more like he's on the right path, whereas like there's like that ambiguity of like he's starting on the right path, but we'll see how it all goes. Because I think the Mennonite stuff also is is answered for us in the film. In the book, we we are kind of interpreting what he what actually comes of that. And and I mentioned, I touched on this earlier, but I think there's a couple small changes or big changes that in those scenes that are leading you to that is leading you to feel that way, in my opinion, uh, him reaching through the glass and touching her. Uh, now, you could say, does he really do that because he ha- actually is some sort of supernatural being at this moment? I think you could read it that way, um, but I tend to lean more towards it's more of um, a surreal kind of imagining moment. He's kind of imagining himself do this thing. 
but he's not actually doing it. But the importance of the scene, we talked about in the book that there was a barrier between the life behind the glass and the life outside the glass. And how and they talk about it when they're at the AA meeting, the idea of you carrying your sins around and being out in the cold and looking in at people who are living, quote unquote, normal lives and wanting to be on the other side. And in that scene where he's he's on the outside, she opens, throws up in the blinds. She can't see him. And he's just staring up at her. And they recreated that really, really, really well in the movie. Um, but in the in the book, he doesn't penetrate that barrier. And we're left with a sense of there is always a divide. And these people are on that side. And I'm on this side. And there is no breaching it. Whereas in the movie, he reaches through, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big difference there because it's showing that he's able to do that. Now, I like to think that this is the filmmaker making a observation about how this character, as we talk about in the book episode, based off of real life, Dennis Johnson, I like to interpret the ending of this movie through the lens of Dennis Johnson himself getting clean from the drugs and using his pain and using his suffering and his life experience to create art that reaches out and touches people and helps them to feel like they are a part of something and helps them to feel like they are understood. And so in that sense, he is able to reach across the barrier and he is able to use his pain to help people. And I think that also is reflected in the scene where Fuckhead is walking through Beverly home, touching people mm -hmm. and, and, and clearly, you know, affecting them and, and, and helping them. And to me, that all, that all goes back to, I think an observation that Dennis Johnson through this book itself, uh, achieved that in some way. And it's interesting because I don't know that he was willing to go that far himself, but as you can see someone else from the outside looking in, could make that observation about exactly the and i think that that's what the film ultimately becomes at the very end here is it just it is an interpretation of what he himself went through and i mean you you wrapped it up in a nice bow there it's a full circle for for dennis johnson for the film for the character fuckhead uh for all of it like the sort of reaching through that you were speaking of and i i think that that's a great place to leave it i agree i think um that was my takeaway from this film so if we, we want to leave it there then I'm happy with it because uh, that was ultimately how I felt about this movie. Yeah, I like the way that it came together to and said something different in the end while also being such a faithful adaptation. Uh, it didn't yeah. go quite as experimental as I mentioned I would want to. But yeah. again, I don't think that that would have been very successful. So it wasn't in many ways. It was very experimental, though. Um, and like I said, I really wish I had had someone watching that film next to me that I could have talked to afterwards to find out how they felt about it. Uh, as someone who hadn't read the book, just completely like as a standalone thing. Cause I am, you know, maybe you guys can write us right in if you do watch it for any reason and you haven't read it. If you have a new person who's seen the movie, but not read the book, I'd love for you to write into us ink to film at gmail.com. Let us know what you felt, like how you felt about the movie, not knowing the source material. I'd love to hear it. They took some big swings and I could see somebody who, who didn't necessarily read the source material being kind of jarred by that but i think yeah. ultimately i i really enjoyed this film and i'd be very interested to like you said be very interested to hear what everybody else thinks um i do have one more thing that i wanted to mention before the end and that's something that through our coverage we haven't talked about yet the 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 title jesus son was a lyric pulled from heroin by velvet underground 
uh, Dennis Johnson pulled it out for a very specific reason. And, and I think it'd be interesting to get into it here at the very end. Yeah, I went and listened to the song for the first time, actually. So I'm definitely excited to talk about that. Real quick, I had a thought about this as, as we were getting ready to record. And I wanted to mention it on the episode. I loved that for this book, I was able to, in this podcast, it enables me to do this. I was able to spend essentially two weeks solid thinking about this material. And when I do that, I turn it over in my mind over and over again. And then when I see an adaptation, it informs the original source material as well. And it makes me reappreciate it in a new way and look back at it in a new way. And for this sort of like really rich, you know, just pregnant with meaning kind of book, uh, I think it's it's been a real pleasure to cover this. And it's been a real pleasure for me to go to be able to just really sit with this stuff and think about it for so long. Um, and I, I've, I've just really enjoyed that about this project. So, you know, even though it is a little more obscure, definitely a little more indie, um, I don't know, it's just been really fun for me. I mean, yeah, I, it's a project that I never even knew I wanted to do. And so the fact that we've done it now, it's, it's just given me a whole new appreciation for multitude of things and it's a movie i never would have found without this so i appreciate the podcast for that every week and um everything that you just said before we should print that on a t-shirt and that should just be like the catchphrase of the podcast that whole like (laughs) 15 20 seconds of speech okay uh i have to re-listen to this later and see if it was any good uh i don't even remember what i said at this point now i i'm I'm a fuckhead myself let's move on (laughs) um i i did want to say hey we're going to be covering game of thrones coming up next which i'm very excited about uh very important series for me we're gonna be doing a whole month on it uh for season one um it's going to be sort of our you know we want to set the table for the series returning for the its final its final season uh, just a few months here. I can't wait. I, you know, I've read a thing on Reddit, and it, apparently it's been like 540 something days since Game of Thrones was on TV. A new episode <laughs> was on. So I'm excited to get back in there and, and get, you know, reacquainted. And and I've been putting off a, a reread for a long time so that we could do it for the podcast. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. And I hope everybody will return and, and listen to that uh, with us. We wanted to do a big shout out to our patrons who make this thing possible. And specifically, I want to thank uh, Amanda VP for becoming a new patron. Welcome aboard. Thank you for, for, for listening. Yeah, thank you so much for your support. If you wanted to connect with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. We also have a Facebook group called the Council of Inklings, and we post polls and other adaptation-related news. Uh, so, so check that out if you're interested. Yeah, and if you'd like to help the podcast out in another way, support us in another way that doesn't cost you anything, leave us a rating and a review on uh, iTunes. Uh, is the best place to do it, but we'll take them anywhere. And thank you again to Jennifer DeLazana for providing our transcripts. Absolutely, man. So you did, it sounds like you did some research into, into where this name came from, so I want to hear it. I was really interested. So I went in and I was like, I got I to gotta hear this song. And I was so blown away. I, I asked you to listen to it before we, before we listened. And, and like, did you have any initial thoughts? Yeah, so to me, this this it felt like the soundtrack to this movie in some sense. <laughs> um, it felt very seventies. It felt very drug fueled. I mean, obviously, the name of the song's heroin. Um, it's it to me, it was abstract and kind of about what it felt like to be to be an addict and to get high and and sort of the highs and lows of it. But I didn't do a real deep like lyrical analysis or anything. Yeah, well, I it's more of just the feeling. My first, I only listened to it a few times, but the the feeling it's not that subtle but it is it, it's like 
it's cool. It's really interesting to have this like it's sort of like this somber like like periods and then intermittently you can tell like that high come on and he starts singing about heroin and it picks up and and like the tempo picks up and he starts singing more enthusiastically. You can tell he's happier and then it's and then those lulls come back and, and it's kind of just that back and forth, back and forth and nearing the end, it's just chaos. Uh, mm, yeah, and I just thought that was that was so brilliant and and such a fascinating song. Uh, so maybe we can uh, maybe we can include a little clip of it here. Maybe we can get away with that. Okay, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about it. But yeah, maybe there'll be a little clip of it here, and you'll hear a little bit of it. Just here at the end where it's hidden. <laughs> but I'm gonna try for the kingdom. If I can, cause it makes me feel like I'm a man When I put a spike into my vein And I tell you things aren't quite the same When I'm rushing on my run And I feel just like Jesus' son And I guess that I just don't know And I guess that I just don't know So I also did want to say that the, there's a critic, Mark Deming, uh, who wrote, while heroin, describing the song, hardly endorses drug use, it doesn't clearly condemn it either, which made it all the more troubling in the eyes of many listeners. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And I think that that's also something to think about with the film and the story in general. It's not yeah. necessarily condemning the, the, the drug use. It's showing like I mean, some of the side effects. Multiple people die from it. <laughs> we do see the side effects. You're right. You're right. Yeah. There is there is a, a significant amount of of uh, of condemning. But I guess what I mean is that like it seems you could see the characters having a good time f- for a significant amount of the movie, so which it, some people would find troubling. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And it seems yeah, to I be like that. you you kind of see some of the scenes or in the book or in the film, and you think like oh like there's something there's like a little pull, you know what I mean? You're like, oh, it seems like something, an interesting experience at the very least. All right, man. I think this is a good place to leave it. You know, next up we'll be heading into Westeros, so. Can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening. 